Amen. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. How many know Easter was Sunday, but Jesus is still alive? Amen. That's uh, He doesn't just come alive on Easter and we eat some chocolate and then go home. Uh, that's not how it works. He is alive and well. He is reigning and ruling. He's at the right hand of God in heaven as we speak. And so um, today I wanted to do kind of a Easter follow-up, if you will. We talk about on Easter the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we're made alive through Him and uh, we live because He lives. Amen. Which all of that is true, but generally the talk of such things tends to fade after all the CEOs have gone home. They're waiting until Christmas comes around to go to church again and that life begins to fade. So the question is, how do we live after Easter? Jesus shows us what the resurrection life looks like, not just in his death, but through his life. In the life that he lived, his encounter with the disciples after he was resurrected. And the reality is life, after Christ brings us to life spiritually, sometimes doesn't always look the way we pictured it. And uh, so tonight we're going to look at our text, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, which says, this is, um, of course, after Jesus has been crucified and he has been resurrected three days later, and Jesus is finding his disciples and revealing himself uh, to them. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, which says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out to go uh, and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This evening, I'm going to preach a sermon entitled, The Resurrection Life. Let's pray. Father God, help us tonight, God, that your spirit, Lord, would speak to your children in this place, God, that you would go out amongst us, God, and minister to the hearts and minds, God, not by my word or my will, God, but by your spirit alone, in Jesus' name, amen. So first, I want to deal with the frustrations of new life. And just the fact that there are frustrations in life in general can cause people some issues because uh, the misconception throughout the church world, especially to people who were non-believers and then become believers, is that Jesus Christ fixes everything in your life. How many have experienced that? You got saved and all of your problems disappeared. Nobody. And that is frustrating when you expected that to be the case. We, we, we get saved and Christ comes into our life and I hope it was this amazing experience for you. But when you went home that night, 
many of your problems still existed. You see, the reality is that we can be frustrated by the complications in life that still exist because we thought, well, Jesus Christ rise from the, raised from the grave and he resurrected me, and so now I'm living a whole new life. Well, there are some truths to that. We are living a new life spiritually. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit, but we still live in a broken world, surrounded by broken people. And we are one of those broken people. But we do have hope in a new life. But it does come with frustrations. You know, there's times where we're struggling in life and we finally get a new job with good money. And then as time goes on, we realize we still struggle with money. Your relationship, your dating, you know, you're, you're lovey-dovey and then things begin to go on the rocks. And what's the solution that many people have today as well? Things are getting hard in our dating relationship, so let's get married. That should fix it. It doesn't usually fix it. In our churches even, we go through revival and we have this amazing week of revival services. But when that Wednesday ends and Thursday morning comes, life is back at it again. Even as we go to a conference next week, we're going to be experiencing amazing uh, 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 moments with the Holy Spirit, with one another through fellowship and just all that God's going to do. But when when that plane touches down in Washington State and we all come home, we will still have life before us. You see, these are all good things, getting a new job, going through revival, marriage, and all of these things, but it doesn't always fix the problems. A good example of this is Egypt, uh, the, the Israelites in Egypt. Moses comes in and, and God uses him to liberate Egypt, but it doesn't take long for them on their journey to the promised land to realize that just being set free from Egypt didn't solve all of their problems. If you read the book of Exodus and even beyond that about Israel uh, being set free from Egypt, they got as so- almost as soon as they got into the desert, they still had some issues. God still was dealing with them in some areas. They still had some character flaws to work out. You see, the reality is that the thing that fixes everything doesn't always fix everything. You see, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And we are forgiven of our sins because of what he did. And it fixes our sin issue, which is everything to us. But we still have frustrations of life. And if we look at our text, we see that Jesus' disciples still run into some struggles in life. They couldn't catch any fish. Verse uh, verse 3 from our text says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're all going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and they caught nothing. We deal with issues of feeling like we are nobody or insignificant or we're obscure. But one thing I want to point out from this text is uh, verse 2 from our text says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of, uh, of Cana in Galilee, so the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. They didn't name these two others. I find it interesting to think that as John is penning his gospel, he couldn't remember the names of these two men. And sometimes we feel like this, like we're around all of these people who have names, right? Who get recognition or, 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 or have a purpose and we feel kind of purposeless. 
and we feel obscure in life to the point to where we're in a crowd of people and if somebody were to remember that moment, we would just be the other person who was there. Sometimes we feel like uh, life is limiting us because of our circumstances. If you look a little farther in, in chapter 21 in verses 18 and 19, Jesus is speaking to, to Peter and he says, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by the death that he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And Jesus is not only predicting the way in which Peter would die, but he's expressing to Peter that when you get older, you're going to feel restrictions in life. You're going to go through some things that hold you back from what you wish you could do. It says you're going to go somewhere you do not want to go. But Jesus addresses these issues, these frustrations in life in ways that only he can do. We see from our text that they're struggling to catch fish. How many know if you're a fisherman, you need to catch fish, otherwise you don't eat and you don't get paid? But Jesus comes and he says, cast your net on the other side. And what happens is he, they bring in so much fish that they can't even, well, bring it in. They had to let some go. And he looks to the obscure, the people who feel like they're faceless in a crowd or nameless in a memory. But at the same time, these men were there. They got to see Jesus Christ move in a miracle. They, like I just said, they caught all the fish so much that they couldn't bring it in. And these men experienced God's power. That's a privilege to see God move in a miraculous way. And sometimes our limitations in life will glorify God. It, it speaks of Peter and the way that he died. It was limiting to him, but the way he died was glorifying God. And the answer to these is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, follow me. He says, keep it about me, Peter. Remember what I told you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. We must keep our lives, resurrected lives, about Christ, no matter what our frustrations in life bring. It's like we love to say in this fellowship, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel. The main thing is Jesus Christ. Our life should be focused around Him. So as we focus our lives around Christ, it will look like different things. One of these key things to focus on is fellowship. And I'm not talking about going to church, although that is important to continue to do that. But the condition of our culture today is focused and centered around isolation. You look at culture today and, and people are always at home you know, watching TV or streaming their shows or playing uh, uh, video games on their computer, social media, 
Uh, Amazon brings everything to your door. Nobody has to go to the store and shop anymore. DoorDash even brings your McChicken to you. And you don't have to face people. You can even now with these, you know, you order DoorDash and it says contactless delivery, which means you don't even have to see the face of the person who brought you their food. You just have to wait till you get the text and you open the door and there it is. Your chicken nuggets. You see, more and more as society advances, we have less and less face-to-face interaction with human beings. Nowadays, there's uh, countless amounts of jobs that are working from home and you can clock in and clock out without even getting out of your pajamas or interacting with other people. I would do it too. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not condemning the pajama part. You see, COVID has created an era of isolation. You see, right up until 2020, you had all of these high school seniors who said, our future's looking good. We got 2020 vision, but they didn't have any clue what was coming. 2020 was, was a good year to show us that we had no idea what was coming. But because of COVID and, and the quarantining and all of that stuff, we've created a culture of isolation. Constantly separated, especially during COVID and unable to meet. It was it was like against the law. There was rumors of people like getting arrested for walking out their front door. I don't think that really happened in America. It did happen in other countries. Thank God we live in America for now. It's at least mostly free. I'm not going to get into that. But (laughs) it created not only a culture of isolation, but isolation that people begin to not only be okay with, but enjoy and embrace. And it created a mental and emotional and social crisis for many people. You see, many people, as they become isolated to the world and isolated to the people who they used to see on a daily basis, they begin to struggle with all of the things you struggle with when you're alone, you, you name it. Depression, anxiety, addiction. S- they say uh, domestic violence went through the roof in all the isolation. You spend that much time with your family and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down eventually, right? <laughs> no, just don't. <laughs> Maybe the siblings, but not the... But it created a lot of issues for people. And Jesus, in our text, brings the dynamic of the resurrection life into a dynamic of gathering. You see, Jesus showed up on the shore and called them to the shore for a fellowship. He wasn't going to give them any Bible lessons or parables. He wanted to just hang out with them. You see, a little bit beyond our text in verses 9 through 12, says, Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught. Come and eat breakfast. They were having a morning potluck. And I love it how he tells them, Hey, catch some fish and bring them in. And then they bring them in. He's already got some fish cooking. That's just a side note. You see, he met with them in a, in a gathering format. He met with them in, in, Listen, let's just have breakfast together. Let's spend time with one another. You see, this isn't church. This isn't a, 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 a big you know, sermon on the mount moment. It's gathering 
and being the church together through fellowship. See, Jesus made himself known through fellowship to people. Yes, he ministered to people. He spoke parables and and remarkable sermons. But you also see him uh, inviting his disciples onto the shore for for a fellowship. You see him retreating away from the crowds to spend time with his disciples. You see him welcoming the children to, to see him and just be around him. And then you see the disciples and the apostles follow this example. You see, the mark of new life after Pentecost was fellowship. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, after the Holy Spirit had fallen, the church begins to uh, be established. And it says this in verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So in other words, they said they gathered for church on Sunday and they took turns hosting a potluck at their house throughout the week. They were going to church and they were fellowshipping. They were spending life together and doing life together. You see, the reality is we don't experience the fullness of a resurrected life in isolation. The new life that we have been given is something that is meant to be experienced together. Because Jesus could have come and did a solo act. He could have come and, and done a bunch of miraculous things by himself. He could have, could have, I mean, he had all the power, right? But he chose to, to have personal relationships with people, to have close relationships with his disciples and experience life with one another times of fellowship with each other. You see, this used to be part of life. And I truly believe that the culture in America and probably other countries has changed drastically because of the isolation that COVID created. And we as a church have to make an effort for this to be reestablished. And and it it was true even for our church. I remember as we began to come out of all the lockdowns and restaurants were opening up again, we used to have, you know, all of these church was over, so let's go to Applebee's or McDonald's or, or wherever, and we'd go hang out, and we'd stay out way too late for having to work the next day, and we'd fellowship and spend time with one another. And just like that, every, every restaurant in town was closed for who knows how long. And it became just what we expected. We would go to church and we'd go home. Restaurants aren't open anymore. We can't do much anymore. But as the restaurants begin to open up again, we kind of forgot that we could still do that. I remember, um, I remember having a revelation, if you could even call it that, that we could go out and eat after church again, after the restaurants had been open for months and months. And since then, we've been doing it more often. But these are things that we have to reestablish, look back at life pre-COVID, if you will, and think, man, I need to reestablish connections with people. We have to break this vicious cycle because the reality is being together, being around people helps our minds. But sometimes our minds don't want to be around people. It's like the one thing you need is the one thing you don't want to do. We all know what I'm talking about. Whatever it is, 
We all have something like that. I'm ADHD, so I got like a thousand things like that. Like, I don't want to do it. And I finally do it. I'm like, that was so fun. <laughs> but we must realize that sometimes our heart deceives us. The Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? The phrase, the advice that the world gives you, follow your heart, that's horrible advice. Jesus says, do not, or the, the book of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together of God's people. That's church and that's fellowship and that's everything in between. Proverbs 18.1 says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Isolation leaves you one-on-one -on -one with the devil. Isolation leaves you one-on-one -on -one with the enemy, the one person who wants to snatch your soul from you. I saw a quote just the other day that said, the more it's, it's, it's not that profound, but it's profound at the same time. It says, the more time you spend time with God, the less time you spend with the devil. Right? Duh. But yet, how often when we're struggling to make it through the day, are we picking up the Word of God? Are we taking time to pray and seek God when we're going through it in life? But instead, we tend to, in this culture today, seek isolation. Because sometimes people are difficult to deal with. If I just don't deal with, if I don't just don't see any people, then I don't deal with drama, right? Not interacting with people, not serving people. You know, what's interesting in our text is Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. Not, hey guys, let's go fishing together. He tells his buddies, I'm going to take off and go fishing. And they're like, we're going with you. And he, I wonder, I mean, there's nothing that... <laughs> It's important to, to classify. I wonder. This isn't, this isn't solid theology. I'm not saying this is what... But I wonder if he was trying to isolate. I wonder if because of all of the previous events that had been going on in the lives of the disciples, he was trying to isolate himself and create distance from sound logic. I wonder if his friends knew that. And they're like, we're going with you, bro. Ain't no way we're leaving you alone right now. Unification is crucial amongst the body. And division is fatal. In, in his uh, first book, Fellowship of the Ring, written by J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings, uh, describes a camaraderie of a diverse group banded together w by a common cause. You think about it. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Three? Four? Four? Okay, we're going to have a Lord of the Rings marathon. You guys need culture. <laughs> They're amazing movies. Maybe I'm a nerd. Well, I am a nerd, but maybe, whatever. But if you don't know about The Lord of the Rings, first of all, it's an amazing movie, and the books are amazing as well. But what you see is a group of very, very, very different people band together for one cause. And so the, uh, the book describes the camaraderie of a diverse group banded together by a common cause called the Fellowship of the Ring. Their quest is to destroy the power of the Dark Lord lodged within a ring. Though they differ in nearly every way, racially, physically, temperamentally, they are united in their opposition 
of the Dark Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In, it's not by coincidence either. J.R. Tolkien was a brilliant author and he was a Christian, so he, on purpose. In a section which was omitted in the movie, there's a heated conflict that breaks out among the Crusaders. Axes are drawn, bows are bent, harsh words are spoken, and disaster nearly strikes the small band. When peace at last prevails, a wise counselor observes, saying, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who oppose him. That's kind of a wordy phrase. But what he's saying, basically, is the Dark Lord shows his power by dividing people who say they're against him. So imagine, if you will, this group here, as a church, take a stand against the Dark Lord. I hope we do. Dark Lord, let's say he's Satan. We are a church. We take a stand against Satan. Like, that's simple, right? And if the devil can come in here and work in our minds and our lives and create division in a church, then he has succeeded in dividing people who are against him, making us fight against each other instead of against him. Unification of the body, unity of the church is crucial for success, both in the individual believer and in the church. Living a resurrection life is focused on fellowship and it's focused on your future. Without a doubt, the disciples are going through some difficult times. They're having to deal with the betrayal and the suicidal death of their friend Judas had to have been difficult to deal with. You think about this. They spent years together following Jesus Christ and one of their very own brothers betrays not only Jesus but all of them by setting up his arrest and then committing suicide. That sounds straight out of like a crazy drama movie, right? I mean... We, we tend to read this so nonchalantly, the story of, because we, we all know it, like we've heard it before, right? Oh, the, uh, you know, G Judas, he betrayed Jesus and then he committed suicide. Good, right? <laughs> That's how people, he had it coming. But put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for a moment. Their brother, who they served with, just betrayed all of them, especially Jesus, and it resulted in the death of Jesus Christ. And then he committed suicide. That would be hard to deal with. They had to have been struggling with this. They had to have been thinking about this. This man who was normally with them, not, now he's gone and not on a good note. He didn't, you know, take a job elsewhere. He's gone, gone. And he was gone before he was gone, if that makes any sense. And they have to be thinking, man, where do we go from here? What do we do next? How are we supposed to continue on with our lives? We've lost a friend to this. Now Jesus is gone. What direction are we supposed to take our lives? And you look, Peter returned to fishing. Jesus had called him to follow him and to drop the profession and serve God with his life. And now we see the fishermen returning to fishing. I wonder if, you know, Matthew was sharpening up his, his resume to send into the local... Um, uh, you know, tax agency. 
they have to figure out where to go from here. H and R Block. I was trying to think of the name of one. <laughs> but then Jesus shows up. Resurrected. Brought back to life. To show them that they also have a life and a future. And that they need to face that future. He, we see Jesus works to restore Peter and Peter needed some res restoration. Jesus shows up and deals with Peter directly. He says, you know, we see that Peter, uh, through the Gospels, as Jesus is facing trial, rejects, or uh, uh, denies knowing Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted he would. And then as soon as that happens, he books it and cries like a baby. Jesus gets uh, crucified, and then he goes back to fishing and just decides life is going to be back to what it was three years ago, give or take a year. But then Jesus shows up and says, no, Peter, I still have a future. Yeah, you messed up, buddy, but I still have a future for you. I can restore you. I can use you. He lifts him out of his failures and commissions him to care for his sheep. He tells Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then tend my sheep. He says, Peter, I'm, not, I'm not, not worried about what you did. I'm worried about what you're going to do. I'm not worried about the mistakes you made. I died for that. Remember, that was the whole spiel. I resurrected to prove it to you. I'm, I don't care about what you, what you did. I'm worried about what you're going to do. Peter, care for my people. Peter, care for your, dis your brothers and your sisters. Peter, lead people to Christ. And this is a beautiful example of how imperfect people are able to be used by a perfect God. And you read the Gospels, and, and, and if you know, we get to the point to where Jesus is like, okay, now I'm going to pick who's going to lead the new church, who's going to be like the, the pastor, if you will. And we would pause for a second and think, man, who's he going to pick? John, you know, he's pretty legit. And James, you know, but we would never pick Peter. Peter had some blunders. He did some crazy things. But yet Jesus Christ picks Peter. He says, Peter, I need you to get this thing started. I need you to get this. Th and we see in the book of Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit falls, the first sermon ever preached in the new Christian church is Peter. And he speaks brilliantly like never before. And the Bible says 3,000 men and their families were added to the church that day. That imperfect people can be used by a perfect God. That Jesus can look at each and every one of us and say, I don't care what you did, but what are you going to do? I don't care the mistakes you've made. Just drop your net and follow me. He showed up to restore confidence in his men. To give them new life and a focus on the future. You see, the reality is, Jesus' disciples all had different futures ahead of them. We all have different futures ahead of us. They may be side by side, linked arm in arm, but the reality is, we all have different things in our paths. We will have different experiences. 
And tradition, church tradition says that Peter's future led to him actually being crucified upside down. They wanted to crucify him right side up like normal, but he said, I'm not worthy to die in the manner of my Savior. And so the solution was to turn him upside down. That's what his future held. And Jesus, in the text that I read before, says you will be taken where you do not want to go. You will be bound by another. That is Jesus predicting that he is going to die in service to him. And something within Peter still said, okay, sign me up. Think about that. The same man who denied Jesus three times, one of them before what the Bible says was a little servant girl, probably like a 13-year-old girl. And he's like, no, I don't know him. Don't talk to me. But now he has a future. Now he has a destiny. Now he's empowered by the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I do. And he says, then feed my sheep. And listen, Jesus didn't have a flock of sheep that he was worried about after he sent it into heaven. We're not talking about real sheep. We're talking about people. We're talking about the church. Jesus is telling Peter, listen, I'm going away soon. And you need to take care of these people. You need to lead these people. You need to feed my sheep. He's given a destiny and a purpose. And through all of this, the story goes on, and, and Peter t looks at Jesus and he says, what about him? Motioning towards John. What about him? Uh, you say, I'm going to die for the gospel. What about him? He wants to know other people's future now. Jesus doesn't always tell us that we're going to die. Actually, from my knowledge is pretty much almost never what about him jesus you see but the reality is we don't all have the same futures we will not all have the same blessings and we will not all have the same sufferings and as we see other people get blessed as they're serving god or we or we go through our own difficulties that other people aren't we begin to ask questions does god not like me like what does he have against me does he love so-and-so more than he loves me? But Jesus tells Peter, when Peter says, what about him? Jesus says to him, it's not your problem, dude. Just follow me. That was a paraphrase. <laughs> he says, don't worry about him. Just follow me. Don't worry about the people around you. Just follow me. And this is such a contrast between the Peter we've seen before and the Peter we now see. Peter, who was willing to be crucified upside down for the gospel, was the same Peter who rebuked Jesus Christ for wanting to die for their sins. Jesus says, in, in a few days I'm going to be delivered up and crucified. And Peter says, no way, Jesus. The Bible says he took him aside and rebuked him. He rebuked Jesus. Bold would be one word. Dumb might be another. Wasn't his best moment. 
But now the tables have turned and he's willing to die for Christ. And in Matthew 16, 20, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, each one of us has our own cross, not someone else's. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are smoother, some are got more splinters. You know, some are oak wood, some are maple wood. I don't know. But the reality is we all live different lives. That's the point I'm trying to make. We all have different lives, different paths, different futures, different callings, different purposes, but the same God. The same command from Jesus Christ, which is follow me. The struggles and blessings of life will be different. But the reality is that if we follow Christ, no matter where it leads us, our life will glorify him. And if we trust Jesus with our own failures, because they will be plentiful, all of us, and follow him, our lives will glorify God despite our failures. But we cannot fall into this comparison trap. Like, that's the first thing Peter did. He said, hey, what about him? Pastor Mitchell says it plainly, comparison is of the devil. Stop stacking yourself up against the person next to you and stack yourself up against what does God have for me? What is God asking of me? And you think about the struggles that we have, even the men who, who didn't even get a name in this story, just those two guys who were there too, got to experience this moment with Jesus Christ. There was about six people there, six, seven people. I don't remember how many not very many. Such a special moment. And these men were part of the foundation of the new church. You see, sufferings don't come equally in life. And neither do the blessings. But the same is true for eternity. Is that the blessings aren't given equally either. The Bible says those who have en endured will be generously rewarded. We're talking about eternal life. That no matter how difficult the struggles of life are, no matter how difficult our crosses are to bear, that the eternal reward will pale in comparison to everything else. And this is something that we see in Peter in his attitude towards the gospel and laboring for God as he gets older we see that he progresses in his understanding of eternal reward. He learned from his experiences. And we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, which was written by Peter sometime later, which says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through the faith of salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, 
honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying we have rewards in heaven, an inheritance in heaven that are uncorruptible, undefiled, do not fade away, and reserved for you and I in heaven. That will be revealed to us as we step into eternity. And he says, even if you go through a little bit of trials, even if you go through some difficult times in life, it may be found to praise and honor and glory Jesus Christ. You see, Peter had faith and hope that carried him through the suffering. Peter, Peter was able to find a not only a purpose on this side of eternity through Jesus Christ, but realizing that everything he labored for in this world, everything that he suffered through in this world would amount to eternal blessing. I close with this. Imagine, if you will, two women. They're the same age. They're the same uh, status in life. They're the same education level. They're even of the same temperament. And you hire both of them and say to each of them, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, identical temperature, and ventilation. And you give them the very same number of breaks in the day. And it is, without a doubt, boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way, except for one difference. You tell the first woman that in the year, at the end of the year, you will pay her $30,000. But you tell the second woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't this driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's the difference? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. And the difference is it is their expectation of their future. The illustration, of course, is not intended to say that we need a big income. But rather that we need to know what we believe about our future. And what we believe about our future controls how we are experiencing our present. Because as humans, we are undeniably hope-based creatures. And we need a hope for our future, and most importantly, for our eternity. Can I have every head bowed and every eyes closed this morning?